0: Good morning. It's good to be back with you all again here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. This morning we're going to look uh, together at Judges chapter 6. We may be familiar with the book of Judges. There's that refrain that comes four times at the end that in those days there were no kings in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the story of Judges is a story that may be familiar to all of us in kind of the cycles of our lives. As we go from periods of faithfulness, of knowing what God is doing and living in His um, blessing and experiencing that blessing and flourishing in our lives, but then as Israel did and as oftentimes happens in our life, we become very comfortable and complacent in that place. And as we see over and over again in the book of Judges, Israel forgets about this God, they worship idols, and then they're plagued by nations. Maybe for us, it's troubles come up in our lives, storms that distract us from our faith. And then what ends up happening is we cry out to God, and He delivers. And the cycle repeats over and over again in Judges, the seventh book of the Bible, Uh, as Israel continues to struggle between the unfaithfulness that they see in their lives, but the continued faithfulness of their God. And God over and over again delivers them and comes to them and shows himself that he is the God of faithfulness, that he's the God who loves us, that he's the God who cares for us and is watching out for us, even when sometimes we don't love him. And we're going to come today to the story of Gideon. Uh, this, we're going to look at Judges chapter 6, but we're going to talk about kind of Gideon's whole story. So if someone else comes in and guest preaches, you just say, we've already heard the whole story. They come in and bring Judges chapter 7 to you. Uh, we're going to talk about 6. We're going to kind of talk a little bit about 7, the completion of that story. Uh, but Judges 6 is the story of Gideon. He's the fourth judge and Many commentators say he really is emblematic of this whole situation in Israel. Uh, You know, there's Samson, the strong judge with the long hair. There's Othniel, the first judge, who really is, you know, he's flawless. I mean, he, he just rises up to the occasion. He follows God, and when he's done, he just goes back and lives his life in faithfulness. But Gideon's kind of more like us. Gideon's this judge who's always doubting, he's always questioning, he's always skeptical. He's like Israel. He really is emblematic of the whole situation in the book of Judges. That we go from these periods of faithfulness to faithlessness, and yet God stays the same. He's faithful to us in the midst of that. If you turn with me, we'll look at Judges chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse... Eleven, and we'll go to verse forty. Big passage. We'll get through it together. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the terebinth at um, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Ab, uh, Ab- Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, "The Lord is with you, o mighty man of valor." And Gideon said to him, "Please, my lord." The Lord is with us. Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us um, out up from the land of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and has given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do uh, uh, Do not I send you. And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I s- save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike down the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speaks with me. Please do not pr- depart from me until I come to you and bring, me, uh, and, and bring out of my presence and set it before you. And he said, I will stay till you return. So Gideon went to his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour and the meat he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them under the terebinth to present them. And the angel of the Lord said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. And the angel of the Lord reached out to the tip of his staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and the fire sprang up. "'from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. "'And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. "'Then Gideon perceived that that he had seen the angel of the Lord, "'and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord, from now I have seen the angel of the Lord uh, face to face. "'But the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. "'Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace.'" To this day, it stands in Ophrah and, uh, and belongs to the Abyssrites. That night, the Lord said to him, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And he built an, him, uh, and, uh, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here, and with stones laid in due order. Then take a second bull and offer it as a burnt offering uh, with wood uh, of the Asherah that you shall cut down. So Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord told him, but because he was too afraid of his family and the men in the town he, uh, um, to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold... The altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that, that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is God, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, in that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam. That is, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altars. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent his messengers throughout all of Manasseh and they, um, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and is dry on the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more, please, let me test you. Just once more with the fleece, let it be dry on the fleece only, and on the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on the gro- and on all the ground there was dew, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we're reminded of how oftentimes we struggle in our faith, that even though you're present, that you're working, that you're powerful, that you have proven yourself time and. And time again, that we ourselves often find ourselves complacent, struggling to accept you, to walk with you, and to know you. So we ask that you would show us again your faithfulness, that you would cause us to walk and follow this God who is faithful, to know your love and your grace, to see that you're continually at work in us, a weak and fickle people. It's your name that we pray. Amen. So a couple of months ago, my wife and I, we watched a documentary. I think it was on uh, Netflix. It was called Project Possible. You may have heard the story. Happened back in 2019. There was a guy named Nimral Purja. He's a Nepalese mountaineer. And he, uh, with a a team of uh, Nepalese climbers, they decided that they were going to in six months, climbed the, uh, I believe it was 13 or 14 highest peaks in the world, Mount Everest being one of them. Uh, but he was going to climb all of the highest peaks. Those are peaks that are over 8,000 meters in height. And they were going to do all of this within six months. Now, the previous records, the, 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 I think the guy who held the record for him was like 10 years that he had done this over a long course of time over many different hikes and periods. Uh, but uh, Nims Nimral, he goes by Nim's, he decided that they were going to do this in one single journey. And there's, you know, this whole controversy around it doesn't it count because they were using oxygen tanks, all this kind of stuff. But the point was this. As they set out on this journey, everyone said, there's no way anyone can do it. And they prepared and they prepared for two, three years to make this journey happen. And everyone said there was no way that it would be possible. And so he named the project Project Possible. Well, the end result was that they did do it, but they did it in six months and six days. They had an issue getting into the last peak that was in China. They were closed off until the very last day that it was open for them. They got in, they hiked that peak, but it was six days after the mark they wanted to do it. So they did this whole journey in six months, and six days, but as they go along this journey, and it's documented uh, in this, in this um, movie on, on Amazon Prime, you see that not only was this project impossible as they were preparing for it, not only was this an impossible journey to go on, but also as they're out there on the mountain, they are having to save people, to rescue people who are dying as they're hiking in these rough conditions who don't have, you know, oxygen, and they're doing all of this while they're themselves on this journey to try to accomplish this monumentous task. I share that story with you to say that sometimes in our lives, we find ourselves in situations that are seemingly impossible. That we think there is no way at all that God could be present here. That the situation, the things that are stacked up against us seem too monumentous for God to work. Maybe we find ourselves in that situation with our kids, maybe with our lives. As we think about struggles at work, as we think about relating to our boss, we all have bosses we love, right? You know, and it's like, God, how how could you be working here? How could you be present here? because everything seems to not make sense, because everything seems so hard, so challenging for us. What we see in Judges chapter 6 is we see a story of a God who shows up in these difficult places, a God who is present in the places that we thought he wouldn't be, because as the story begins, Of Gideon and Judges 6, chapter 2, we see that once again, Israel has fallen into unfaithfulness. And once again, a nation has come against them. This time, the Midianites rise up. This time, as we see Gideon in verse 11, he's hiding out because he's scared. And all of Israel is scared because this nation seems worse than all the other ones that have been there before. But as we continue in Judges, there's going to be worse nations that still come. But Israel's scared, and as God comes to Gideon, he even says to him in verse 13, God, where are you right now? We heard these stories of Egypt. We heard these stories of your faithfulness. It doesn't seem like these are those times. And I think if we're honest, sometimes we're in those situations in our lives where we say, God, I don't know if you're here. I don't know if you're at work. But what we see in Judges chapter 6, what we see in the story of Gideon is that this is a God who is present even when we think he's absent. This is a God who is working even in places that we don't expect him to be. What Judges 6 shows us is that God's grace shines the brightest in the darkness of our lives and the difficulties of the situations we find ourselves in. And we want to see that together today in three ways. We want to see how God's grace shines the brightest in our darkness as we look at how God is at work in the most unlikely of people and in the most unlikely of places doing the most unlikely of things. We want to see those three things together today. That God is at work in the most unlikely of people and the most unlikely of places doing the most unlikely of things. First, how is God at work in the most unlikely of people showing us his grace that it shines bright in the darkness. Well, we come to Gideon uh, in verse 12 all the way down uh, to verse 24 uh, of chapter 6, and, and we see this man who is uh, threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you know, I'm no Hebrew scholar. I, I you know read some commentaries and took a little Hebrew, but that's not a normal place where you're going to thresh wheat. That's what's indicated in the text. What Gideon is doing where we come and we meet this guy is he is a coward. He is scared. There's a war going on outside his door. And instead of fighting in that war, he said, you know what? I'm just going to provide for my family. Not a bad thing to do, but I'm just going to provide for my family, and I'm going to do this in secrecy. And I'm going to avoid all that's going on around me, and I'm just going to hide out my wheat here in this wine press. And it's in that place that God comes to him. It's in that place that God finds him. And he says, Gideon, you're going to be a leader of Israel. I'm going to raise you up, and you're going to deliver the Midianites, Israel from the Midianites. And Gideon immediately says, God, you got the wrong guy. There's no way this could be me. I I come from the most unlikely people. I am from this odd tribe, the Abysrites, who are a tribe of Manasseh. There's no way you could want me to be a leader of Israel. And he enters into this exchange that that really mirrors this exchange that Moses has back in Exodus 3. You know, God, there's no way you could be calling me to lead Israel out of Egypt. Gideon says, God, there's no way you could be calling me to be a leader of these people. And he wonders, does God have the right man? Is God calling the right person? But then we go on and we see more about Gideon. We see as God... uh, calls him to be a leader, that God gives him this instruction, Gideon, I want you to go out and destroy the idols in your town, the Baal and the Asherah. And it says in the text he goes out and he does that, but he does that in a specific way. He goes out in the middle of the night because he's afraid again. And in fact, as he goes out in fear and he fulfills God's command that he even hides out the next day, and it's not Gideon who rises up to defend his action, it's his dad. His dad said, no, don't kill him. He's actually done something that's honorable. That Gideon is himself, even though he's called to be this leader, is afraid to speak for himself for his actions as he follows this God. And then finally we see this last instance of how Gideon is this most unlikely of leaders as he says in this exchange, very probably famous to us, the exchange of the fleeces in verses 36 through 40. That Gideon says to God two times this passage, God, I know that you've already said you're going to save these people by my hand. I know you've said you're going to do this, but let me just make sure. Let me ask you to do these two things for me. Would you make all of the ground dry and the fleece wet? when you make all of the ground wet and the fleece dry? If you can do those things for me, then I will know that you'll deliver as you've already said. And how often is that the case for us? How often is it that when we understand that we know that God has promised to be faithful, and he's promised to be faithful in our marriages, in our work, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, he's called us to love our neighbors, to love him. We say, yeah, God, I'll do that when you fix this, that, and the other for me. When you resolve this conflict in my life, then I'll know how often do we lay up these walls between us and God and say, God, I'll follow you when you can do X, Y, Z thing for me? And that's what Gideon's doing here, and that's oftentimes the situation that you and I find ourselves in. We say, God, I'll follow you when you show yourself faithful. And when you show yourself faithful, I want you to do that on my terms and in my way. You know, the books, The Lord of the Rings, it's, it's no mystery why Tolkien he chose the hobbits to be the ones to carry the ring and to finally, you know, bring that into the pit to destroy it in Mordor. Because you think about the characters that he has in this novel. He has, uh, you know, Aragorn, who is the king, who has amassed this army, is in the third book and is able to crush the orc army. You know, he could have easily within, you know, one chapter have, you know, wiped out the orc armies, have destroyed the ring. We think of Legolas, the elf, who with his speed and his stealth could have easily gone through the orcs and could have gotten this done or Gandalf with his magic. But he chooses these hobbits who are like you and I, who kind of just want to be hanging out, eating and drinking, having their second or third breakfast. They don't want to go on this journey. They don't want to do all this hard work. They just kind of want to hang out and relax. They just kind of want to be, you know, threshing wheat in the wine press. while All of this stuff is going on around them. And I think Tolkien, and I think what we see in Judges chapter 6, is that he chooses this image for us because it's so relatable. Because how often for us, these most unlikely people, were called by God's grace to live as, as he says, his salt and light in the world is called to live as a city set on the hill. And we say, God, that's... It's a lot. And yet God says, no, I love you. I'm committed to you. I've called you to be my people. I've called you to, on this incredible journey. I've called you to be part of my family forever. And it's as hard as that is, as unlikely as that is, God says, you know what? That's what I'm all about. Choosing unlikely people to do unlikely things. And what we see is that God not only chooses unlikely people to follow him and do unlikely things, but he does so in the most unlikely of places. Because what we see is that not only is Gideon an unlikely candidate, but the people he comes from is very odd people. Because as Gideon describes here in this passage, he says, God, you know, I don't know why you would call me because I come from this right tribe. You know, they're kind of an obscure people group. It kind of reminds us of when Jesus comes on the scene and everyone says, no one would ever come from Nazareth. How could a Savior come from this community? How could a Savior be from this place? Gideon says, look, you're not going to want a leader from this area. But then we're introduced to these people down in verses 28 through 35. It's the Abyssalites who have this idol in their town, and, and what we see is that they're not just people who have you know, kind of forgotten about God, but they're totally committed to walking away from God and idolatry. That as Gideon destroys this idol in the middle of their community, they're angry about to kill him for the fact that he did that. But what we see at the end of that passage is that it's these people around Gideon that God says, these people are going to be the leaders of this movement. These people, God amasses the rest of Israel around. And not only does he call Gideon the most unlikely person to be the leader, but he calls this nation the most unlikely tribe to be the leader of this movement to overthrow the Midianites. And again, I think God is oftentimes in the business of working in this way. I remember for myself when, as we just heard of a, a group coming back from a mission trip, I went on my first international mission trip to Peru. You know, and as a naive 15 year old, you're saying, you know, I'm going to go on this trip because I'm going to make a big impact in this area. And what you find out is how big the area makes an impact in you. That when you interact with global poverty, when you meet Christians in places who have far, far less than you could have ever imagined that you see an incredible faith in their lives. And you witness that God is at work in places that you never thought he was at work. And he's doing things in those places that you never thought he could be doing. And we see that as well in our own culture. I recently uh, watched the movie, The Jesus Revolution about the, uh, the, the, the hippies coming to faith in the 1960s and 70s. I was just talking to my parents about it this morning. It was actually one of the largest kind of Christian movements, you know, probably of the last several centuries. You know, they, they say at the end of the movie, the, the largest Christian movement ever. I would have to disagree. I think the Reformation probably is. But that's what they say. Um, you know, numerically, very large, but this movie is about this, this reality that here in the late 1960s that all of these hippies who were, you know, wanting to, you know, have a free life, to live freely in their sexuality, to, to experience drugs, to, you know, have this kind of freedom in, in the political space and all these cultural kind of tables were turning. And here were these people who were searching. They were searching for something as Lonnie comes uh, to the pastor, uh, I believe his name was Craig, and he says to him, these people are searching for God, but the church's doors are not open to them. And as a result of that, as a result of this change in perspective, all of these hippies started coming into faith. And this massive Christian movement happened as these people who were desperate for something found their desperation fulfilling God, and no one would have ever seen that coming. You know, you're in the 1950s, and you would have thought, oh, by 1970, there's going to be thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of hippies coming to faith. And yet this is what happened, the impact that we still see in our lives today, the impact that actually impacted my, my family, that they actually came as a result out of that movement. Out of God working in this most unusual of situations, in this most extraordinary places. And I think you and I can realize that it's oftentimes in the darkest places that we really see and appreciate the light. That when we're walking around in the daylight, we're, we're we're fine. You know, the light isn't something that we love that we desire. But when we're in that place of darkness, we say, "I need the light." And sometimes God does that in our lives. Sometimes God does that in our world. And sometimes God works, not only in the most unlikely of people and not only in the most unlikely of places, but he works in the most unlikely of ways. Because as I told you before, we're not only just going to cover Judges 6, but I'll give you an intro into Judges chapter 7, because what this story is really about is the preparation for what happens in Judges 7. Because as God raises up Gideon, as he raises up the Abyssalites, as as he prepares them to overthrow the Midianites, we see the conclusion of that happen in chapter 7. And you may remember the story that that God calls this this group of people that come around Gideon, that come around the Abyssalites, and he calls this group of people, and there's 22,000 in number. And he says, there's way too many people who are here. We need to get, you know, half of these people gone. He says, anyone who doesn't want to fight, you can leave. They all leave. Then he devises another test. Anyone who, who kneels down and, and laps the water like a dog, you know, they can stay. But anyone who cups it with their hands, they need to leave. Well, there's only 300 soldiers who are left. God says, I'm going to defeat the Midianites with only 300 soldiers because I want everyone to know that it wasn't by Gideon, that it wasn't by the Abizrites, that it wasn't by Israel, but it was by my hand that I delivered you. And they do just that. They're delivered by God's hand in the most unlikely of ways. And again, I think you and I can realize that, that God is oftentimes working in the most obscure ways. And as we think about In the first, second century Roman Empire, just after the days when Jesus came, I recently read a book by Tom Holland called Dominion, where he he talks about just the progression of Christian history from the days of Jesus through today. And he says, if you were living in Rome, where you had power, where you had prestige, where you had philosophy, I know you guys are going through Corinthians as Paul pulls out at the beginning of that book, You know, Jews want a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. This is the culture that they all lived in. Where everyone wanted power, prestige, kind of like our culture today. Everyone had their competing ideas and thoughts. And it's in the middle of this culture that this Jesus, who is crucified for our salvation, that all of these people begin to follow him. And and probably, actually, is the largest Christian movement in all of history. When Jesus is crucified, and this little tiny church in Jerusalem then, in a certain sense, takes over the whole world. And this little tiny church preaches this this message of God's love through his Messiah. It preaches this message that there is no male or female, there is no Jew or Gentile, there is no slave or free, because in Christ we are one. In Christ, we are unified. And maybe that's a little bit outrageous in our day, but in that day, that was totally earth-shattering, groundbreaking. That was a radical message. And yet God, through this Messiah, God, through the crucifixion of his son, through this most odd, unlikely circumstances, he brings salvation to us. But he also changes the world. He also changes our reality. He also invites us to be citizens of his kingdom. He calls us to live by his faith that God, by his own doing, not because of who we are and not because of what we've done, but simply through Jesus, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, that God changes us and he changes this world. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your great love, your grace, your mercy to us through your Savior, through your Son, Jesus Christ, we thank you that because of Christ that we can have life, because of his death, his resurrection, that we can be renewed, and because of your love, that we can be changed. Father, we ask that we would live as your people, that we would know uh, what it means to walk by faith, that even though it is difficult, sometimes to follow you in the difficult situations we find ourselves in personally that we would still nonetheless know your love and your grace. We know your faithfulness to us to the end. It's your name we pray. Amen.